Welcome to the Healing of Emotional Wounds podcast series. My name is Alan Mulhern. Today we're going to look at the function and role of the ego in the psychotherapy process. We have talked of the importance of suspending the ego so that alignment to the deeper psyche takes place. But this is a temporary process. Even within a session, such a suspension may last only a short period of time in which an inner descent takes place. So, first of all, what is the ego? And secondly, what is its role in the process of psychotherapy? The ego can be thought of in a dual manner, functionally and experientially. Firstly, it can be understood objectively as a function of mind, providing a sense of planning, control, focus and concentration by means of testing reality, self-control, exercise of will, self-awareness, and executive control of cognition. Think of sleeping and waking up in the morning. As one sleeps, one's ego has been suspended, has it not? One's control functions of thinking, analysing, filtering, repressing, have disappeared temporarily. As one wakes, one leaves that state and enters slowly into consciousness. It's a process, isn't it? It's as if the software on the computer is being loaded up and one's executive, that is one's control functions, come into being. One takes it totally for granted, but this miracle of consciousness happens every morning. One remembers who one is, slowly. One emerges out of one's body state. At first one is in a non-repressed state, close to the feelings of the body, perhaps of the dream world. Then one orientates where one is, in space, in time, the activities of the day, what one has to do. Notice what one has to do, one becomes aware of who one is, one's purpose or one's goal or one's duties. This ego, this subjective sense of identity, comes in both functionally, that is, these functions of cognition, analysis, space, time and causality, these, as it were, coordinates of consciousness are assembled and one's personality is assembled. The person who one subjectively is identified with. So the ego can be suspended and is every night in sleep. This is a normal process and in fact is totally required so that the ego can function during the day. Notice someone who hasn't done this, who hasn't slept. The less sleep they've had, the less their ego functions, the less their personality is coherent. So the ego depends upon this foundation, this foundation in the body, in the soma, for its rejuvenation and for its healing and reparation. So the ego is erected upon these foundations. Repressing and filtering functions, operating with respect to the external and internal world, are required for this. The ego, with its executive functions, I'm in charge, selects those aspects of the external environment it decides to focus on, either for its survival or its advancement. It therefore filters out those aspects of the external environment which block this process and selectively focuses on those promoting it. Exactly the same process occurs in the inner world. 
The ego filters out and represses those elements of the psyche which threaten its stability and its seeming equilibrium. Thus, painful experiences are repressed. Vulnerable aspects of the personality are denied, and so on. The study of the repressive functions of the ego is the core of psychoanalytic theory. Since the inception of the discipline of psychoanalysis, the understanding of defence mechanisms, which defend the ego, has remained an important part of character analysis. That is, when the Freudian psychoanalytic endeavour to understand character is undertaken, then the understanding of an individual's defence mechanisms is a central part of that. It's not the only part, but it's very important. The Freudian id-ego-superego model, the id being roughly the instincts, aggressive and sexual, the ego being a layer of one's consciousness, and the superego being the moral consciousness imposed upon the ego, embodies this model of repression. We started this podcast by looking at the ego in a dual manner, functionally and experientially. We've just looked at it functionally, that is, at the different functions of the ego, and tried to describe them as objectively as we could. But the ego is first and foremost an experiential fact. It's the centre of our personal existence. It's what makes us I. And therefore, we need to look at this a little more closely to see its role in psychotherapy. The ego, the person I believe myself to be, may be regarded as the centre of one's subjective sense of identity, the experiential sense of coherence, that is the centre of personality, attached to which are a host of character components making up a unique character, such as intelligence, diligence, introversion or extroversion and so on. The ego may believe it owns these character components, but it is more accurate to say they are gifts and have a constitutional or hereditary nature. In the process of psychotherapy, these character components play an important role. Some are of great value, such as determination, moral courage and optimism, while others may prove to be detrimental, such as shame and self-doubt, should they persist throughout the therapy. Some components may need development, such as greater symbolic capacity, introspection or empathy. Others have to be questioned, challenged and changed. In order for this information to pass from the deeper psyche to consciousness, one has to really listen to the messages and challenges arising. And for this, the ego, in its functional aspect as centre of focus and concentration of higher cognitive functioning, must recede to allow the messages from the deeper psyche encoded in another language to come through. For example, a businessman with a punishing work schedule has a recurring dream through the night that a telephone is constantly ringing, but he doesn't pick up. In session, he is asked not to analyse this, but simply relax and associate loosely with who might be ringing. He imagines a friend who has retired to be with his family. Besides receiving the message, the ego, in the second sense as the centre of identity, has to change. It has to let go of the character components causing the problem and allow other aspects of character to emerge. Dominant complexes recede, so new forces within the psyche can emerge. The businessman's principal dilemma of ambition versus insecurity 
needs to recede, while his more related and feeling side, his anima in Jungian language, needs to emerge in a closer connectedness to his family, also symbolic of his greater self. His deeper psyche tries constantly to get through to him, but he doesn't pick up the message until he stills his anxiety. At first, the ego is involved in that conscious identity is usually in crisis or a state of suffering at the start of psychotherapy, and the ego is frequently central to this crisis. A period of understanding the origins and context of the problem is typical of the next phase. Here the ego is strongly engaged, since it has to question itself. However, for the deep psyche to be contacted and heard, it is necessary that the ego steps aside and relinquishes dominance, allowing a sense of identity, that which I think of as me, to be questioned. Thus the dual aspects of ego, its functional role as the centre of consciousness, and its experiential role as the centre of a sense of identity, are both questioned and relativized. As the grip of the ego is lessened, then the subject may listen to the deeper psyche, begin to attune to its messages, and perceive their adaptive meaning. Finally, in the integration stage, consciousness and the ego return to play their very important part, since considerable change will be required of them both. Thus, a healthy dialogue can occur between consciousness and the deep psyche. The ego, therefore, plays a variable role throughout. Firstly, admitting, sharing and assessing the problem. Secondly, surrendering, dismantling its defence mechanisms and repressive functions, so as to allow other parts of the psyche to operate. Thirdly, readjusting itself so character can change. The healing process has, then, different requirements for the ego at each stage. The subject of consciousness, to use Jung's acute description, is the ego. This crystallises the character components of the psyche into a sense of identity, which undergo change in the psychotherapy process. Consciousness, of course, is capable of self-reflection, essential to the psychotherapeutic endeavour. Inner awareness, a rather different and specific term which we use occasionally in these podcasts, is a special portion of consciousness, one which is able to look inwards in a non-analytic, open way, uncluttered by regret, aspiration or duty. It is a meditative type skill, distinct from analytic self-reflection. It's as if the left hemisphere has been suspended and aspects of the right hemisphere of the brain are activated. The activation of this portion of consciousness, inner awareness, requires that other parts of consciousness, executive control, cognitive functions, filtering and repressive functions, temporarily cease. Consciousness is clearly a multifaceted phenomena. Its effectiveness partially depends on its extraordinary capacity to select, focus and marshal other areas of soma and psyche to its ends. Just as in the outer world, hunting a prey requires a shutting down of the inner world, for example one stops daydreaming, and complete focus for a short, intense period on selective aspects of the outer world, the object being hunted, speed, danger, etc. So too in the inner world, 
the awakening of inner awareness needs the receding of anxiety and desire, plus the suspension of most other aspects of consciousness. Thus an intense alertness, initially non-focused, but later selectively focused, can be the vehicle for impulses, energy and information to emerge from the deeper psyche. Transformative healing work requires a change in parts of the personality where the sense of identity resides. This involves various stages in which parts of consciousness are questioned, challenged and suspended, while others come forward to be integrated in a complex unfolding drama of which I will now give a simplified overview. The client on entering therapy is suffering and their sense of identity is usually in crisis. Ideally, the ego is at least prepared to change but is confused. Empathic comprehension is at first applied to the client's problem. This has been described in earlier podcasts as stage one, containment and understanding. This passes to stage two, analysis, in which a deeper understanding is sought of the character of the client in the context of the suffering and problems experienced. In particular, the understanding of how the client's character has contributed to this suffering. Apart from the initial emotional containment, the emphasis so far is on the analytical. Consciousness, not the unconscious, has the upper hand. Greater understanding is achieved and consciousness is broadened by this process. However, in many cases, this does not bring about sufficient change and suffering still continues. A deepening of the process is required. Stage three, termed here the alignment to the deep psyche and called by Jung the synthetic stage. Synthesis implies bringing things together, while analysis implies breaking things up so things can be understood. This stage three then is quite different because the dominance of ego consciousness is replaced by a listening and connecting to the intelligence of the deep psyche. The elimination of the critical intellect Young's term, is the first stage of an enancia drama, another term that Young was fond of, which means something turning into its opposite, in which the opposite principles come to the fore, consciousness being increasingly challenged and replaced by an intelligence outside of itself. However, as described in the scans in previous podcasts, what happens, I suggest, is that a portion of consciousness, inner awareness, is activated and contact is made with parts of the deep psyche where wounds exist. Energy and information are released from these areas as this inner awareness is brought into contact with them. Therefore, consciousness, strictly speaking, has been reduced, but is never completely absent. Its participation in the transformation process is always vital. It's just that many aspects of consciousness are now in abeyance or suspension, especially the ego, and its mechanisms of control, defence and repression. So a different form of awareness can be activated, sympathetic to the deeper psyche, which now uses this inner awareness as a vehicle for its expression and change. Consciousness and the deep psyche always require each other in one form or another. They are the dramatis personae, the conjunctio oppositorum, the sol and luna, of the transformation process. You can see that your Latin vocabulary has to improve a little as you become familiar with Jung's vocabulary.
Dramatis personae, of course, means the chief characters of the drama, referring to consciousness and the unconscious, while conjunctio oppositorum, sometimes termed coincidentia oppositorum, is the union of opposites, central to the wholeness of the self. And Sol and Luna are chemical references to sun and moon, which are the masculine and feminine conjunctia. Of course, Latin terminology would add weight to the impression. Take a term like mysterium tremendum. Well, that sounds a tremendous mystery. However, it doesn't quite sound the same in English. But these terms were not just used casually by Jung. They had definite references within the philosophical traditions and the alchemical tradition. Alchemy in particular was something he researched and innovated within, showing that the alchemical enterprise was an underground mystic attempt by the alchemists, in his view, to achieve the self, i.e. the gold of the psyche. And therefore all the terminology and all the images and the stories that poured out of alchemy were journeys of the self. The final stage for integration requires a deepening and broadening of consciousness in response to this ongoing process of alignment characteristic of stage three. Firstly, consciousness has to be able to work psychologically at increasingly higher levels in order to assimilate and work the material from the deep psyche. Secondly, ego identity, the subjective centre of conscious personality, has also to undergo change in response to the healing requirements emerging from this process. Thus consciousness is transformed in two aspects, functional and experiential in its capacity to relate to the deep psyche and in its personality structure. Despite the above model of how the ego undergoes a process of change and growth, the practitioner needs always to assess the strength or fragility of the ego. Consider the following opposite cases. It is possible that the deep psyche of a client is in good condition, healthy, yet consciousness centred in the ego is out of touch with this underlying reality. In this case, we would say the ego has to change, attitudes need to be challenged, and a reorientation of consciousness is required. Here the ego clearly has to give way, its pride recede, it needs to listen to its deeper reality, to change. In short, the ego is the problem. The underlying structure is healthy and capable of wholeness. Yet consider the different case of someone who has suffered deep disturbance and trauma at an early stage of life, before the ego could be properly formed. Suffering and wounds are engendered at the foundation of self and strong defences are formed which try to defend it from further disintegration and pain. The character components of this psyche, this client, have elements of deep early trauma. For example, the sense of trust is impaired. There may be a lack of belief or hope, a continual feeling of disharmony, conflict and pain in the psyche due to the early trauma and severe splits that occur in the psyche. Here the problem lies clearly not in the ego, but rather in the underlying emotional structure. Hence the ego, erected upon this foundation, may also be in crisis and suffering, or vulnerable, or weakened. It may malfunction, suffer anxiety and depression, endure dark moods from the deeper self invading consciousness. 
To recommend in this case, the ego should be devalued or disempowered as if it were causing the problem is clinically counterproductive and may be dangerous. In the former case, the ego has to lessen its dominance and in the latter, it has to be strengthened. One can notice this frequently in spiritual organisations where somebody has such a crisis at the root of themselves may come for relief or for hope or for salvation but the underlying emotional structure below the ego is in great suffering. Yet if this spiritual organisation says you must dismantle your ego what have they got left? If inside is a deeply disturbed or is a horror story. In these cases, it would be dangerous to give up the ego. In summary, the practitioner needs to be aware of the crucial yet variable importance of the ego and of consciousness at each stage of the transformation process and healing journey and be able to judge whether the ego and its defences need challenge or support. However, it is their challenging and dismantling which leads to healing intelligence being released. In our next podcast, we will examine the six principal ways in which healing of emotional wounds takes place. We will also explore the obstacles that exist to this amazing force of healing intelligence in the psyche. I hope you can join us then.